You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. It's great to be with you on this beautiful day here in the South. Uh, there's lots of immigration news and things happening these days. Uh, and I do apologize to many of our listeners. I had a, a couple of weeks off because of some international travel. Uh, but this gives me an opportunity to get back on the air when I get back with lots of inf- interesting information for our listeners and for those that are following the topic of immigration. Now, I will tell you that really one of the most pressing things that we see right now that a lot of people are complaining about is the U.S. consulates, particularly that in Ciudad Juarez, of denying immigrant visas for individuals who are being sponsored through their family because of the public charge requirement. Now, this is uh, really an interesting uh, uh, development uh, that really began in January of 2018 when the Department of State um, surreptitiously and without really any, uh, any notice uh, decided to uh, undo uh, 22 years of public policy on the, uh, the process of uh, public charge, and as that was defined in IRA-IRA, and supplement and add uh, uh, additional criteria, including non-cash assistance, to the public charge requirement. And uh, by doing that, what's interestingly enough has happened is that the, uh, the consulates, uh, particularly that of Juarez, because we haven't really heard it out of anywhere else, uh, are now being sued by the city of Baltimore. Uh, so the city of Baltimore filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of State uh, a couple of months ago uh, where they allege that the Department of State's new guidelines in the FAM, the Foreign Affairs Manual, um, make it harder, unnecessarily harder and, and illegally harder, uh, for foreign citizens who are likely to be found to need public benefits to qualify for visas. Uh, just this last Friday, a coalition of 18 state uh, states, uh, several advocacy groups, and cities and counties, such as Los Angeles and Austin, Texas, uh, filed amicus briefs in response to a motion to dismiss filed by the Department of State, uh, in which they claim, uh, and, and this we see on the ground, any immigration lawyer listening to this knows this is true, um, that consular officers, this new guidance that they have, uh, is... Uh, Making it, making denials rise uh, dramatically on this basis because they're, what they're doing is they're allowing the, this new foreign affairs manual allows consular officers <coughs> in their discretion to weigh the likelihood likelihood that a visa applicant or member of their household <coughs> will require public assistance of any kind, quote, public assistance of any kind when deciding the petition. Um, and what that's doing the, the, is arguing Baltimore, it's, it's discouraging immigrant families from enrolling in unnecessary benefit, necessary benefits. Now think about this. All of us that are immigration lawyers know that we've been asked this question. Can I apply for uh, WIC? Can I apply for food stamps? Can I apply for non-cash for my U.S. citizen children? Uh, on uh, the, uh, the, wet, the Facebook page for nerdy immigration lawyers, there were a couple of posts in the last couple of days where individual lawyers are reporting uh, that, in fact, they have clients 
that are being denied immigrant visas in remarkable situations, <clears throat> including one in the last couple of days where an individual uh, is uh, making more than $200,000 a year uh, and serving as a co-sponsor a, for a member of his family, um, and the consulate did not believe that that was sufficient evidence that that person wouldn't go on public benefits. Now, let's keep in mind what the purpose of the whole idea of uh, public charge. One, by having somebody sign an affidavit of support, that is supposed to outweigh any idea, any, any belief or supposition that an individual would go on public benefits because the affidavit of support is a contract, a legal contract between that foreign national, that U.S. citizen from a resident, and the United States government. And the United States government can go after that far, that both that foreign national and the individual who signed for them as part of that affidavit of support, whether it's their individual sponsor or whether it's their co-sponsor. And by doing so, the U.S. government loses no money. Now, I, I, in 30 years of practice, 23 of which almost have been under IRA-IRA, uh, I have not heard of nor seen the federal government going after any sponsor or co-sponsor under this law. And so what appears to be happening is that the know-nothings that now run the government, that have infiltrated the Department of State and the USCIS and, and ICE and others, are now saying, well, the language of the actual statute on public charge means that even if the co-sponsor makes enough money to get around uh, the idea of uh, an individual being supported when they're in the United States, that that in and of itself is not, is not enough to overcome a public charge denial. Now, this this seems really directly contrary to Congress's intent. Now, we go back, those of you that weren't practicing or alive in 1996, trust me, it was not a great time to be an immigrant. Um, and IRA-IRA, as it developed, uh, was uh, something that uh, none of us were particularly happy about uh, as part of the process. Uh, but it was way better than what the alternative was, which was a a complete elimination of the legal immigration system. So, you know, we fought what we could fight, and we thought that we would be able to come back shortly thereafter and fix it. And there was for years the rallying cry of Fix 96, uh, which unfortunately we were never able to accomplish. And thus, as a result, we now sit uh, 23 years on uh, with a poorly written, poorly devised uh, anti-immigration bill uh, written by Newt Gingrich and his zealous colleagues uh, that actually has caused more undocumented immigration and more harm than it has, than it has uh, avoided or have we been able to uh, uh, stop coming forward. Now, I think it's really important to understand what the language, <coughs> and I'm sorry for the, the occasional cough, uh, my cough button is not working. Uh, so I'm going to have to cough to the side, so I do apologize. So you'll find this in Section 212 of the Immigration Nationality Act, uh, uh, A4, public charge, and it says this. Any alien 
who in the opinion of the consular officer, now this, this is crazy when you think about it. So the consular officer, his opinion, you know, I don't like cheese. Okay, that's a bad decision, but it's not sustainable, but that opinion counts here apparently. Now what this means is opinion at any time, or in the opinion of the attorney general at the time of admission uh, or adjustment of status. So what that means is CBP or USCIS, when they admit them at the port of entry or they apply for adjustment, they can also have their opinion. But the key difference on that second clause is that if the attorney general does it, uh, then, or the DHS secretary, we can challenge that in court. We run into the doctrine of consular non-reviewability if the consular officer does it. And here's the, what they have to find. What's your opinion? If they are, like, quote, likely at any time to become a public charge, they are inadmissible. Okay, that's all that says. Now, here are the factors to be taken into account. In determining their opinion, so it's not just I woke up in the morning and I don't, I don't like Cheerios today. There has to be a basis. They shall take into account the minimum of the foreign national's age, health, now, age, you know, a lot of people get asked their parents when they're in their 70s. Health, they all get a medical exam. they got to pass the medical exam. Family status, presumably that means that they're married or they have kids sponsored them. For assets, resources, and financial status, comma, uh, I have something called, and education and skills. In addition, so the next clause, in addition to those factors, the consular officer may also consider any affidavit of support for purposes of exclusion under this paragraph. So what, what the actual law says and what, what the folks at uh, Trump world are counting on is that the statute is actually extraordinarily broad. And it's the affidavit of support is not the be-all, end-all, of determining whether somebody is in fact a public charge or not. And in fact, the evidence support is just something to consider for the consular officer. Now, there isn't really any significant case law that is developed on this, mostly because USCIS rarely, if ever, denies a green card for somebody who makes more then you would see the poverty level income guideline 100% of, of, um, in the regulations. So you really don't see this uh, at, uh, at, uh, at the adjustment stage, and we've rarely, if ever, seen it in the immigration phase uh, at the consular officials. So we're going to take our first break here on immigration. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the actual regulations and maybe what we can do to fix this. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're back here after our break here on the Immigration Hour. It's, uh, again, a beautiful day here. We've been talking about this whole idea of uh, the public charge that is now being used to deny people their resident status. In the last segment, we talked briefly about, you know, the factors that are to be considered. Uh, and the last factor is, oh yeah, by the way, you can also consider the affidavit of support, which has been the be-all, end-all for 23 years, and is not so any longer. So, 
further in the regulation, it says this. Any alien, I mean a statute, this is two, uh, section uh, 212A4, now uh, C, any alien who seeks admission or adjustment of status under a visa number of this title is inadmissible under this paragraph. So you're, you're absolutely inadmissible unless you, unless you have the affidavit of support um, as part of this application. Um, and this is where it gets into certain employment-based immigrants need to have it if they're in there. Um, and there are exemptions, of course, if you are a, uh, um, as an applicant for uh, a U visa or, or a battered spouse. So you've got an interesting situation where we as lawyers have relied on the affidavit of support for a very long time as the be-all, end-all of the process. And it's not the be-all, end-all of the process. Uh, we now have to actually prepare our consular, especially our consular cases, but even our adjustment of status cases, perhaps with a support explanation about how our client is eligible um, in our opinion, and thus in the consular officer's opinion, despite issues that may occur with their health, age, family status, assets, resources, or financial status, or their education and skills. So if you have a client that is consular process, let's say you're, spot, you're, you're working on behalf of your client and your client's 82 years old, and you're representing the, the U.S. citizen son who wants to bring his dad in because dad's been sick and he wants to take better care of him. Well, you run into an age, a health, and an education and skills issue that the consular officer can use to determine, you know what, I don't think this person is eligible because I think they're going to become a public charge. Now, how can you combat that? Well, it seems like uh, the new uh, resident insurance business is about to get a huge lift. That as new residents to the United States are now probably going to need to get insurance before they immigrate to the United States. So before you would tell your client, okay, you must, uh, uh, you must uh, have uh, an assets uh, uh, or you must make 125% of poverty level income. So let's say it's a newly married couple, um, and uh, they're you know the U.S. citizen is just graduated just in college, and then their part-time job they make $22,000 a year. Well, if they're making $22,000 a year, that would meet the poverty level guidelines for purposes of the immigration service. Uh, but unfortunately, we would have to, we would take the statement that, well, if you're consular processing, you know, do you, does your spouse have their age? Okay, so you're young. Great. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, their health is good. That's great. You have a new marriage. That's great. You know, you don't have any assets, but you've got new education and skills. Okay. But what if you're a 65-year-old positioning for your 80-year-old mother or a 90-year-old mother? Well, you're retired, you're older, your health is not good, your parents aren't good. Um, so there, what, I think what lawyers are going to have to do here is look up these insurance options that are available online. For example, at visitorscoverage.com, 
which is part of uh, it's kind of a travel insurance program, but also is for green card holders. Um, there is a statement on here that I think is very, very telling and also very important to understand. And it says this, effective January 1, 2019, Americans are no longer required by federal to have health care under the Affordable Care Act. But, and green card holders typically would be eligible, but they can't get into the exchange uh, until November. Uh, so a lot of new immigrants to the U.S. or green card holders uh, are going to need some level of insurance to enable them to, uh, to apply. Uh, to, and, and so here it says if you are above 65 years of age and you're a green card holder, you can't get into Medicare. You've got to wait five years. Um, and if that's the case, then you're going to need some short-term health insurance plan or new immigrants health insurance plan. And these are available. I think we're going to have to tell our clients, look, you're going to need to talk to an insurance agent about getting insurance for your parents before they get to the United States. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of these companies uh, begin to ag advertise aggressively to immigration lawyers so we can let our clients know uh, what, what the availability is. Um, and it, it's easy, of course, if somebody is a U.S. citizen has insurance to get their spouse or kids, they're going to be able to be added to that. But if you're bringing your seniors in, that's a lot harder thing to do uh, because they're going to need uh, that level of health insurance that they simply haven't had before. Um, here's a great question on one of these flights, which says this. We would like our 80-year-old grandmother to come to the U.S. to live with us so we could take care of her. How do we get health insurance for her? Um, and here's the answer. Prior to 2014, there were a few options available. Individual health insurance is typically isn't available people over the age of 64. And Medicare and Medicaid have a five-year waiting period. Uh, but thanks to ACA, seniors who aren't eligible for Medicare, including immigrants, can purchase guaranteed issue private health insurance in the exchanges, but you can't do the Medicare for five years until five years have passed for these individuals. Uh, so you need to go online and get information about applying for private health insurance as part of this. Uh, so they're available. It's available. It's expensive. And somebody making base income might not be able to cover by that, but I think that's one way to ensure that they're not going to use public resources or go on the public dole, is have that insurance available. Uh, of course, having the FDA support can be considered. So, and again, going back to Section 212A2, you need to look at the actual language of the statute, AB2. In addition to the factors, the consulate may also consider the FDA support for purpose of exclusion. You need to not just give an affidavit of support. You need to sell the affidavit of support. You need to make sure that, that, the, that the consular officer has, as you, your lawyer's information, as the attorney, about how to present uh, this in their interview. And so we know that the lawyer's not in the interview uh, and that the spouse or, or sponsor's typically not in the interview. So the foreign national needs to be prepared to discuss how they are covered under insurance and how their sponsor and or co-sponsor can make sure that they're not going to be a public charge. They also need to be able to communicate if there are issues of health.
if there are issues of age, if there are issues of assets, if they've got substantial assets, great. They should be able to communicate that. They should have that evidence with them. Uh, the days in which we simply fly by a form are over, which is why, you know, immigration is not just filling out forms. It's also making sure that we have all of our clients' ducks lined up in a row to ensure that we have the approval coming to our clients at the end of this process. So we're going to go, go back briefly to the lawsuit that's pending. Uh, this is absolutely fascinating. So there were four briefs filed Friday as part of the 18-state coalition. Um, and their argument is that, that, of course, by making these changes without going through the APA, without going through public comment, uh, that that violates the law. So uh, uh, Attorney General Becerra from California said, this guidance represents yet another attempt by the Trump administration to sow fear and confusion in the immigrant communities. Now, the statement from Javier uh, Becerra, who's the Attorney General of California, I think is quite telling, uh, be, uh, where he says this, uh, this dangerous policy would force parents to forgo basic necessities like food, housing, and health care out of fear. And that's exactly what's happening. It's not would, it is will, it is happening. Um, uh, Ijaz Balaj, uh, Balush uh, from the Public Justice Center said this, the administration changes to the public charge rule have had a profound impact on Baltimore immigrants and the city in particular. Because of the rule change, immigrants now have to choose between using public benefits, which they generally pay for, because these are legal, legal immigrants, keep in mind, they're paying taxes, they're, I mean, they're, they're in part of the system now. They need, and maximizing their youth chance of attending a visa, as a result, changes have had a chilling effect on immigrants in the city. Now, this lawsuit was filed last November. Government filed a motion to dismiss, and it's because in January 2018, there was this rule change, right? Now, the USCIS, DHS, also published a proposed rule change, but that has undergone the notice and comment period. I mean, I don't know, they received a lot of comments. And it's just been sitting there ever since. So it's going to be interesting to see how the, how the district court deals with this. It is quite clear that because of this rule change, people do have to choose between public benefits and, what, and, and getting their, their immigrant relative to the United States. Uh, the motion to dismiss itself throws everything, of course, at the complaint. Uh, but as I said, the quote, kitchen sink. I am, I am going to be interested to see, generally speaking, the Department of State is not used to being sued. They're not. They don't get sued a whole lot uh, on actual policy because, generally speaking, they're exempt in many ways because of the doctrine of consular non-reviewability, which I'm not a big fan of. And I believe you can sue the Department of State, but you got you got to pick and choose. But you never really see the APA applied to DOS's consular practice. The FAM is basically APA-free. Nobody comments on the FAM. So the attack on the FAM... Foreign Affairs like through the Administrative Procedure Act is very unique, and I am going to be fascinated to see how the how the district court reacts to this. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, fascinating to ultimately um, uh, see where this decision comes down uh, for the district court. Uh, we'll be back in just a second on our next segment here on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The next thing I want to talk about, welcome back, by the way, our next segment. The next thing I want to talk about 
uh, is something that got really very little attention in the greater press and very little attention, uh, generally speaking, from the immigration community. Uh, this was a, an article, an op-ed that appeared in the New York Times on Sunday, between uh, with Peter, covered by Peter King, a uh, hyper-conservative um, uh, legislator from uh, North Island, uh, Republican, and Tom Suozzi, a uh, a pretty moderate Democrat, uh, also from Staten Island in New York, and they wrote uh, something interesting. Uh, they wrote that they have a plan. They have a plan to help the DACA kids. They have a plan to deal with TPS. They have a plan to deal with up to 5 million of the 11 million undocumented people. And that plan pays for a good chunk of the wall and helps divert some funds to Central America to stop the influx of, uh, of folks uh, coming to the U.S. Uh, for the various reasons they're coming, which we'll talk about in the next segment. Uh, here's what they wrote. Americans are frustrated by the inaction of the federal government on comprehensive immigration and border security, and so are we. Welcome to the club, guys. Yeah, but, you know, the, most of Americans can't vote on this. And, and you can. You, you can. You can actually vote on this. Uh, we both represent districts on Long Island. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult them by saying Staten Island. Okay. Uh, and we have both worked on immigration-related issues for 25 years. One of us... Representative Suosi, from the perspective of immigrants' rights and as a mayor and as a county executive and now member of the Congress. And the other, Representative King, from the perspective of border security as a former county controller and now as a congressman and former chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. We cover this from different points of view and different parties, but with a shared commitment to finding a solution to our country's border security issues. Together, we have found common ground to address the problems faced by undocumented immigration and the need for robust border security. Every rational Democrat I know, every rational Republican I know agrees with this. And the rational people, we control the majority of votes in America and in Congress. Unfortunately, we don't control the leadership, but we do control the votes. And continue. For more than 30 years, our government has failed to solve these problems. Well, actually... To be corrective, as we just learned at half hour, last half hour, in fact, you created more problems in 1996, 23 years ago, when you passed IRA and put all kinds of crazy stuff in the law that actually caused more undocumented immigration and today stops people from obtaining legislative, regular, regularizing their status um, because of that law. But we'll neither do there. This year, the American people endured the longest government shutdown in history. When lawmakers and the president, let's say the president, failed to reach a spending deal that centered around border security and immigration along the U.S.-Mexican border. The national emergency, oh come on, really, Representative Suosa, you had to, you had to say that, right? The national emergency regarding immigration reform, and is it really an emergency that's been going on for 30 years, is not on the border. Hey. It's at the nation's capital. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. We must work together across party lines to address these matters in a way that receives bipartisan, bicameral support, and gives the president legislation he feels he can sign. Now, I, I am just kind of curious about that. Uh, if we get, get, the, uh, get the president really signing stuff here, um, and whether or not the president can in any meaningful way, 
get us back to uh, to where we need to be as part of this process. Uh, but here's what they said: We want to have bipartisan bicameral support. Okay, on Long Island we have the ten largest populations of undocumented immigrants from Central South America, as well as countless unaccompanied minors. I don't know what what that's in comparison to. I'm sure it's not entirely accurate. Many have been communities in our communities for decades, living productive lives, attending schools with our children, and working six days a week and going to church on Sundays. Amen, brothers. It is our duty as elected officials to provide solutions to the problems, not sound bites to the press. That's actually a sound bite. Uh, that is why we are proposing a realistic set of reforms that would offer legal protection for five million undocumented people and alongside it, enough funding to make our border secure. Tell me, tell me the plan. What is this magic plan that nobody has thought of before? First, our plan would create a path to citizenship for approximately 1.9 million immigrants brought by their parents without documentation or with documentation. When they were 18 or under, the so-called dreamers, to be eligible, they must have graduated from high school, presumably get a GED, have no record of criminal activity, none, that's kind of tough, um, and be either in the military, working full-time for at least three years, or attending college. I may have heard of that before. I think that's called the DREAM Act. Uh, we would extend similar coverage to the 400,000 people who were invited to America a little unclear about the word invited, and given temporary protective status. It's protected, not protective. That's okay. They're only in Congress writing the laws. After facing natural disasters, violence, and extreme poverty in their home country. Okay. Finally, relatives of dreamers, of TPS recipients, and others who are undocumented, approximately 2.7 million more people, would be eligible for three years of protected status, protective status, renewable indefinitely, if they have been in the U.S. for a significant number of years and have no record of criminal activity. Again, where have I heard this before? Oh, wait a second. This bill's been, on the, been around for 20 years. Taken together, this represents 5 million people. Next. To qualify for protection, besides the actual qualifications I just talked about, an undocumented person would be required to pay a $2,000 fee. Now, presumably, that's over and above whatever fee the Immigration Service is going to charge per person. If each of the 5 million paid that amount, our plan would generate $10 billion plus probably another $10 billion to the USCIS and filing fees. Some of that money, in turn, is how we're going to use it, would be used to cover the administrative costs of this new program. So maybe that includes the filing fees. Hmm, we'll see. We figure these costs would be $1.4 billion. <coughs> and these guys call themselves congressmen. Come on. The remaining $8.6 billion would be split evenly. I can see them on the back of a napkin in a bar in Long Island doing this. $4.3 billion would pay for additional physical structures along the U.S.-Mexico border, presumably the fence or the wall or the barrier or the waterfall, I don't know, the moat, who knows, as proposed by DHS. And $4.3 billion 
would go to aid Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras to help prevent future further out-migration from those countries, as well as radar technology, improved ports of entry, immigration judges, border patrol personnel, humanitarian assistance on the border, as recommended by the Border Patrol. Okay. I, that's just a no-brainer to say yes to this. I, I think virtually every Democrat would say, okay, put it on the floor. The devil's in the details, we put it on the floor. I want to see it. But, Mr. Representatives, what are your, what is Mitch McConnell saying? Because if Mitch McConnell is not going to say, oh my God, this is, the, why did no one think of this before? This is remarkable. I can't, I can't believe nobody thought of this. You guys are just, I'm going to recommend you for the Nobel Prize, and I assure you, that letter will not get lost. Um, this is nothingness. It's, it's a giant nothing burger unless they get a bipartisan support over in the House, over in the Senate, for a similar bill. Now, if this bill goes on the, if they start draft a bill that has these key components in it, does it pass the House? Absolutely. Does it pass the Senate with a majority? Oh, yeah, it passes the Senate with a majority. Does it get 60 votes? Does it even get a vote? That, that kind of is the question, isn't it? Does it even get a vote? And I'm not sure it does. And if it doesn't get a vote, then it is just more political grandstanding uh, by politicians. I, we're going to be doing some lobbying in Washington, D.C. here on April 11th. It is, uh, I like to call it National Immigration Day. It's more National uh, Im Immigration Lawyer Lobby Day. But we go up to Washington Capitol Hill, and we talk to our congressmen and representatives, and we ask them, hey, you know, HB6 is great, but why don't we get some Republicans on board? Let's modify this. Let's put some money into the wall. Uh, let's not let the nativists who run the government agencies now also shape the discussion. Let's put them on the defensive. Say, we're happy to build a wall. We're happy to put more money in border security. We're happy to help other countries avoid out-migration of their citizens for a false hope here in the United States when they're not going to win asylum. They're not going to win relief. They're not going to... And so let's put... Let's restore sanity to our asylum system, not by lessening protections, but by enforcing protections. It is no asylum system if it takes six years to get a hearing on asylum, and it's no asylum system if the judges you're hearing it from have a 98% denial rate, while other judges on the parts of the countries have a 98% grant rate. That's not justice. That's not a fair system. So I think we've got a lot of work to do here. And really, we're going to have to see if our congressmen and women are really up to the task. Let's take our final break here on America's Web Radio on the Immigration Channel. We'll be right back with you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio and the Immigration Hour. It's great to be with you again. Uh, this week, and uh, we should be online for next week's show as well, which will be great. Um, I'd love to hear from you, by the way. If you're hearing this on iTunes or uh, uh, any of the other podcast sites, I'd like to know where you're hearing me, because we want to make sure we're getting out to all the sites. Um, we are the longest-running uh, continuous immigration podcast in America, 
probably the world for that matter. Um, we're downloaded over 800,000 times a year. Uh, so we'd like to hear from where, where you're hearing us. You can email me at uh, chuck at immigration.net, uh, or you can email David at david at America's Web Radio. But I'd like to hear where you're hearing us, how you're downloading us, uh, whether it's a TuneIn or iTunes or Stitcher or any other myriad of sites. Because we want to make sure we're posting it everywhere we need to be posting this to get the word out. Now, one of the things that we're going on right now is politics, right? We have all these new uh, candidates for the Democratic nomination for president. Um, I, I think we have at almost as many, if not more, than we're running for the Republican nomination. To date, however, uh, they really have not, uh, not really laid out their plan. They haven't really offered us uh, any genuine alternative, any, anything beyond... Um, you know, hey, we need, we need CIR. We need comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, uh, I would love to uh, see how uh, the candidates are going to respond. The only person I've seen really address this issue uh, in any real detailed way is Pete Buttigieg. Or Buttigieg. Oh, sorry, Pete. Sorry, Mayor Pete. Um, where he has really talked about that the fear that the president uses for immigration, he uses immigrants as a fear weapon, uh, is a lie. Now, that immigrants actually are one of the greatest assets we have in the United States. But if the Democratic uh, uh, contenders, if they're going to succeed, they're going to have to actually use facts and narratives uh, to get the mainstream debates back to a reality that the president has moved far from. Um, you know, for example, there's um, a recent report from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering Medicine, that documents the overall positive effects of immigration on the U.S. economy. Uh, they'll need to talk about uh, how Trump is wrong on crime. And interesting, this morning a, a survey came out that said 80% of Americans do not think that immigration leads to more crime, which is good because it doesn't, and you have to wonder about the other 20% and why facts simply don't matter to them. Um, and if anything, when you show large-scale studies of metropolitan areas where immigrants are focused and, and, and where they congregate, crime in those areas actually decreases. Um, and they have to challenge Trump on this idea of an invasion, uh, distortions. You know, we see uh, a large number of people coming in the last several months on the southern border from Central America. Why are they coming? Uh, why are not Democratic candidates talking about why they're coming? Because if we can understand uh, why they're coming uh, to the southern border, um, then we can deal with maybe fixes to them coming um, and why, uh, why what we're doing, things that we have done in the past, are actually causing a lot of that um, a lot of that problem. So why make the why make the journey? Well, there's a couple things. The, the, a lot of them are what uh, some would call forced migrants. They're they some would say refugees, but they're forced migrants. They're running away from conflict, generalized violence, and targeted persecution. That that's clearly happened because there are record high homicide rates in their country. Uh, Sixty murders per per, per hundred thousand people in in El Salvador. If we had that here, we would be we would be protesting in the streets. Um, Honduras murder rate has dropped, but it's still 42 murders per 100,000. Still one of the most dangerous places in the world. Next, 
sexual and domestic abuse are massive pushers of, uh, of, of immigration. That's why you see so many families, women, and children coming to the southern border because of that. Gang violence is at literal record highs in these countries. Um, MS-13, let's be clear, started in Los Angeles in the 1980s. Started in Los Angeles. We deported that problem to Central America. As rival Salvadoran gangs in L.A. did likewise, crime across Central America increased. So the crime that you see today did not exist at the levels that exist today prior to our deportation in the early 2000s, again because of IRA to Central America. And as they grow stronger by, one, recruiting people from jails and then recruiting youth, um, they begin fighting to expand their control. And beginning in 2010, the turf wars contributed to the astronomical rise in violence across the region. So look at El Salvador went from 36.9 murders per 100,000 in 2000 to 64.4 in 2006 to 70.9 70 in 2009. Wherever you saw the rivalry between MS-13 and the 18th Street Gang, again, an L.A., Bay, California base, a succession of local wars. So you have to ask the question then, why can't their governments get control? Well, that really goes to the symptom here, that Central America's uncontrolled gang violence is a symptom of a more critical issue in the region, which is corruption. Prosecutors in Honduras and Salvador have discovered numerous financial links between high government officials and MS-13. They shield these criminal organizations in exchange for economic support, and political support in gang-controlled barrios. These relationships have, quote, shattered most efforts to build the kind of criminal justice institutions necessary to support a democratic society. You know what? In Central America, you don't see indictments for government corruption. You see it in places like Peru. You see it in Colombia. You see it in Chile, uh, in Argentina to some extent, but not as much as it should be. You're seeing it in Brazil, but you're not seeing it in Central America. <clears throat> as a result, criminals can extort, threat, and kill with impunity. Get this number. This is, this is really an astounding number. 99% of all murders in Honduras in 2014 were unsolved. That means you can kill somebody with impunity. Now... President Trump has justified his crackdowns on immigrants by asserting migrants are criminals. In fact, the opposite is true. The vast majority, like 99.9%, are actually the victims of this. Um, now, so we, those are the facts that we have to get out, that, that Democratic challengers have to get out, as well as this idea that, you know, that, they, that immigrants hurt the U.S. economy. Clearly... The legal immigration system is not big enough. We have more demand than we have uh, than we have numbers that are available. There's long lines to come to the United States, uh, especially from India and China. And if and they have these people with job offers, uh, we have a million more job openings than we have people eligible to and looking for jobs to fill them. So the the rhetoric that they're taking jobs is not true. Um, and you know it's funny because they make the argument, well they're coming in using welfare. Oh, they're coming in taking our jobs. Well. 
How are you taking your jobs and using your welfare at the same time? I haven't really quite figured out how that's happening. And what we've seen is that virtually every study that postdates Borges's Cuban study from 1980, early 1980s, concludes that immigrant contributions overall have a positive overall impact on the U.S. economy, including low-wage workers who typically arrive from Central America that do the difficult work that a lot of the, many other Americans simply don't do. Um, you know, think about this. If we actually put into place Trump's proposal on immigration, most U.S. citizens would not be eligible for immigration to the United States. Uh, I wouldn't be eligible. Uh, most of us would not be eligible because the rules would be so difficult to comply with, and that's the reason. That's what they're looking for. They want to eliminate legal immigration. That's what we get as a result. We get uh, no immigration, which is why that bill is never going to pass Congress, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but at the same time, hopefully they will get something going forward in Congress this session besides the DREAM Act, which HP6, I'm sure Congress is going to pass eventually. Um, but the Senate will never never touch. They're never, never going to go near. They're never going to have a vote. They're just not going to do it. But we'll see. We'll report back in a couple weeks after April 11th and let you know how our individual meetings went with our legislators in Washington, D.C. By the way, I will be up there. I'm going to be bringing my client, 21 Savage, to meet with uh, some of our legislators about uh, his situation and how his situation is emblematic of the overall situation uh, that uh, undocumented immigrants face uh, and dreamers like him. Until next week, this is your host, Chuck Cook, signing off of America's Web Radio and the Immigration Hour. If you have any comments or questions or concerns, or just want to tell me how you hear about our podcast and how you don't want it, you can email me at, at chuck at immigration. Until next week, uh, we'll see you soon. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.